Welcome to CDCR Unlocked. This is the podcast of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and I'm Kyle Buis. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, a topic that's easy to overlook in our day-to-day lives and is especially important in our institutions. Joining us today are Dr. Umar Mehta, Deputy Director of Statewide Mental Health for CDCR, and Dr. Brianna Rojas, Associate Director and Chief Psychologist with the Office of Employee Wellness. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, First question, uh, what made you uh, consider a career in mental health? Yeah, I'll dive into that one. Um, I knew early on that I wanted to better understand people. I wanted to understand their behaviors and their motives and what drives them. Um, And I kind of had a fascination of that from a a really young age Um, and then quickly realized that I also wanted to understand what makes them better, what allows them to recover uh, during life setbacks. Um, And so I'm forensically trained. um, And so that applied specifically to a forensic population or to kind of the intersect of the criminal justice system to simplify it um, and really wanted to better understand the motives behind individuals' choices over the course of their life, but also to develop how the brain works and how the body works and how they all feed in together to, again, hopefully help a population that I think we can all agree could use some extra help. We can all agree we all could use some extra help. Um, but I think that that's really, really was the impetus for me. Yeah, very a lot of similarities there. Um, for me, I was really bad at that as, as a younger person and maybe today uh, at, at sort of uh, the social interaction and having a good instinct for that. And so wanting to understand it better, learn more about it. Um, and I went to medical school and um, I was actually on the surgery track initially. And even though they're the exact opposite uh, from, from the uh, mental health fields that uh, I think a lot of people end up on that uh, split and trying to figure out which way to go. I definitely went the mental health route. Uh, I was originally a child psychiatrist. I uh, worked in the Bronx for uh, several years and really struggled where all of my kids had uh, justice-involved problems or court dates or their parents in prison. I uh, didn't really know how to help them, so I went back and trained in forensic psychiatry, uh, came out to California, and then trained in addiction medicine as well, and was just seeing patients for about six years. Um, in the prison system. That sounds like quite a journey for both of you. Uh, what are some common misconceptions about mental health care? Uh, Dr. Mehta? Yeah, I, especially in prison, um, you see a lot that, that the uh, prisoners or inmates or um, the, the patients, as we usually refer to them, uh, are, um, are really kind of held responsible for their own mental illness in a way that you wouldn't see with diabetes or some other kind of illness that, that would strike them or be in their family. Uh, these things obviously move generationally, both from a genetic standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint. If your parents have substance abuse problems, you are much more likely to develop them because you see these examples in your life. Um, so a lot of these patients are not... Um, Uh, just uh, people who made bad choices every time they had the option. These are people who had something pointing them in the wrong direction, many of those cases. And so that's something we try to push back against a lot, uh, that any of us could have ended up in that situation, given the the starting conditions. Yeah, I think so. So my perspective is coming at it from, um, you know, kind of staff, and and that's my oversight in the department. And I think that a big common misconception in regards to mental health is that it automatically equates weakness or equates, um, you know, there's just a stigma behind mental health that it, if you acknowledge that you're mental health may not be 
you know, up to par, dare I say, that there's something wrong with you or that there's a, there's a level of, again, weakness. And I think that's um, not unique to CDCR. I think that's law enforcement. And I think that's, you know, uh, we see that in firefighters. We see that in police. We see that in, in a lot of different populations. And I think that one of the biggest common misconceptions that I'm really hoping that as a department and as just a society we're starting to change is is that it's not a sign of weakness to, to have any sort of mental health issues. And that we do, you know, it's really easy for us to say, like, oh, I broke my ankle, you know, running. But we wouldn't say, like, I broke my heart. Right. Or, you know, I, I'm having a hard time sleeping because of the neighbor's dogs versus like I'm having a hard time sleeping because I'm ruminating or I'm having nightmares because of something that happened. And so I think that a big mis common misconception is just that as humans, we all suffer and we all go through things and it doesn't make you weak and it may make you need or want mental health services, but that in itself is is like the beauty of seeking that help and, and feeling vulnerable to reach out and say, hey, I'm human and these things affected me, and now how do I work through them? I'm digressing, but it's an important com to topic. No, that is a very important topic. Uh, and just to kind of bounce off of that a little bit, uh, what are some ways we can help uh, remove some of the stigma from taking care of our own mental health? It's a great question. I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it, there's big picture things and little picture things, right? And so little picture is talking about it, just having this dialogue, being open about it, being open to say, um, you know, I was at I was at lunch the other day with some girlfriends of mine, and one of the girlfriends said to me, as the waitress was setting her plate down of food, she said, yeah, so I decided to start taking Prozac. And the, wait, the look on the waitress's face was just, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're having this conversation over a friendly brunch. Whereas we're thinking, great, let's talk about it, right? Um, and I think that we have to have some comfortability with having open, honest conversations about the topic. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, none of us like to be vulnerable, right? Um, but when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, that's how we connect to others. And so having open and honest conversations about it, being comfortable to share, you know, at our comfort level of what might be going on with us, um, and then taking it multiple steps further. So education, 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 right? Understanding ourselves, understanding what drives us, understanding our, our mental health issues, and not because we are pointing fingers or blame or, you know, anything like that, but just to have a better level of understanding about ourselves. And, and I think that if we can kind of wrap those two together, education and awareness um, and understanding and conversations, that we're just kind of leveling the playing field so everyone can say, hey, I all, I all, we all have our own mental health issues. Um, and that would kind of give us a baseline to be operating from, whereas right now we're all too afraid to say that. And so for those people who have acknowledged within maybe having a mental health issue, aren't going to either speak up and or definitely aren't going to seek the help because there's still that taboo associated with it. Yeah, that, that was said very well. I, I think it's it's promising in a lot of ways that there are uh, signs that this is getting more and more acceptance or, or gaining acceptance in the community, especially I think in, in certain socioeconomic strata, it's now almost like a sign of status to have a therapist and talk about your therapist. And uh, you see that start to trickle down. Historically, some of the security threat groups or gangs in the prisons would not allow their members to be in mental health because they don't want you alone in a room with someone that you could tell all the secrets to. Uh, and I think there's been uh, just ironically like a recognition that it's really hard to deal with uh, these patients and help them when they need it. And more and more acceptance that like, wait, we don't want to do that within the, <laughs> the gang structure. We want to let somebody else do that. So yeah, sure, you take care of it kind of thing. Uh, so we've seen actually our, our mental health population grow over the years. Um, since 2012, we had about 26,000 people in our, in our system, and now we have about 33,000, even though the total number of, of uh, prisoners has come down over that time. Uh, so it's a positive sign, I think, that more people are willing to reach out, more people are seeking help, and that normalization that Dr. Rojas was talking about is just key for that.
The theme for Mental Health Awareness Month 2023 is Look Around, Look Within. Uh, we're offering uh, mental health care in prisons, and uh, Dr. Mehta, as you just brought up, you know there are some complications and some uh, differences between uh, treating mental health outside of our institutions and within. Are there any more uh, complications you can think of? Yeah, especially within the prisons, the, um, the patients have very little control over the aspects of their life, right? So uh, a really good example is uh, something called sleep hygiene, where the medications we give to help people sleep are, uh, they, they have a lot of side effects and problems associated with them. Uh, and so it, in studies, what works about as well is a set of behaviors called sleep hygiene that surround the way that your uh, body and your mind approaches sleeping. And so some of those uh, recommendations associated with that would be don't sit down or lay down on your bed unless you're going to sleep. So your brain associates that only with sleep. And if you're not sleeping, you're somebody, somewhere else. Well, if your entire world is about 10 feet by 6 feet, there's not a lot of other places to sit. Um, and similarly, if you're in a, uh, in a therapy where people are... You start to figure out over the course of therapy that uh, a particular person in your life is a really toxic influence and is maybe not the best person that you should be relying on all the time. Um, you can't always get away from that person in, in an incarcerated setting. If they're in your building, maybe even in your cell, um, there's, there's just not a lot of option. And, of course, they can request cell moves, and obviously we work with them to do things like that. The, the, um, Corrections officers are fantastic, uh, but it's it's really tricky to try to adapt things for this setting of lack of control, lack of uh, agency to to work on these problems. Yeah, I, you said it perfectly. I think you know it's been a long a long time since I've done private practice, but I think that some of the things that I would have you know back in the day asked a patient that I was working with to do, you just couldn't ask them to do that in the prison setting, right? And and then so you're really working within those those confinements. Doesn't mean that it uh, can't be done. It just means you also have to get really creative with what that looks like, right? And I think you said it perfectly in the sense of having that level of agency that when we think about therapy and we think about therapeutic help, you know, one of the one of the key principles is really to help the patient, um, help the individual you're, you're working with to have a sense of agency, to have a sense of control, to have some empowerment, to move forward in a positive direction in their treatment, whatever that may be. And when you don't have a sense of agency or you don't have the ability to have complete control over that, you're already fighting an even bigger uphill, uphill battle, right? And so I think that some of the, the barriers are just inherent to a confined space. And again, they're not barriers that, um, that can't be overcome. I think you just have to be really creative with, with how you overcome them and offering treatment. And also being real about it and, and having that dialogue in the in the prison setting to say, hey, maybe if we were out in the community, it would look like this. But since we're here, we're going to adapt this and we're going to make this work together and really having the patient be part of that dialogue too, right? So maybe you can't exercise the sleep hygiene, um, you know, that you, that you pointed out so well, but how can we then tweak kind of your sleep to knowing the barriers we have against it, right? That also raises a thought, which is that um, the people who work in, in settings like this and things are, are people who devote their lives to this, but often you'll see that they have the same situations of, of lack of control. They may be in a, in a relationship or a house or some other living situation where they don't have that control. And you see a lot of the same problems with the, the patients in the system and the, the people who come work in the system uh, over and over. And, and it's, there's, there's an opportunity there, I think, for communication and empathy, uh, but also makes it hard for either of them to deal with each other because everyone's stressed. One elephant in the room that we haven't touched on yet so far is COVID-19. Uh, one thing that I think that we can all agree on is that that was a very uh, stressful and difficult time for everyone inside and outside of institutions. Um, 
a lot of uh, responsibilities, a lot of boundaries, a lot of normalcy was lost during that time. And I was just kind of curious, uh, how would you say that uh, COVID-19 has affected the mental health of both staff and patients? It's expressed itself in so many different ways. And I think that uh, in congregate settings, congregate living settings like um, uh, old folks' homes or, or um, prisons or inpatient psychiatric hospitals, it added just layers and layers of complication because people were uh, very afraid of what outsiders might be bringing into their environment where they have to live and breathe all the time. Uh, it, it created sort of waves that uh, rippled through the whole system. I think I'll just focus on one of the worst ones was, uh, I think, the loss of visiting for a lot of our uh, patients. They they gained strength and, and the ability to carry on from these visits and, and from their relationships with people outside of the system. And when that's cut off, it, it sucks away a source of, of, um, of wellness for them. And the... The good thing I would say that maybe came of that is that we were able to start video visiting in a much, much more widespread and common way, uh, especially some of our facilities. I believe it was Avenal. Uh, they actually allowed uh, inmates to have participation in funerals of family members that were going on. Since so many people were passing away, uh, they would have a laptop that uh, the family member could take from the prison. That was a, It was a prison laptop that had the patient on there and then take that to the funeral, uh, which was just such an incredible thing. And, and we want to be able to obviously continue that after COVID is over. All those good things that we learned and the lessons that we were able to learn uh, should carry on. Yeah, I, I think um, it's funny because you say that. And I think to myself, obviously, when we think of COVID, we don't think of positives, right? And I think that's everyone can agree. But I also think it's really forced us as a department and as a world to really think outside of the box and, and how do we how do we do things differently? And, and I hope we carry on the positives and, and then obviously don't need to deal with any of the negatives ever again. Um, but I think for our staff, you know, I think that um, having the opportunity to, to talk with staff day in and day out and the stressors of their job and, and um, you know, coming to our unit or coming coming to one of my staff in the unit to, to discuss those things, I think what we really saw was being scared Right, a lot of being scared, and we and we know that our prisons inherently have a, a, a level and a layer of safety, uh, safety concerns, and and things like that, and that's just inherent in a closed, locked environment. And then you added this to that another layer of, of of being scared and and wanting to come to work and and do their job and believe in the job that they're doing, but also being scared for the families back at home, their families, their loved ones, and and I think that that doesn't, uh, I don't think that's specific to corrections. I think that's anybody, right? Anybody that has to leave the house, you were worried about what you kind of came back to. Um, but I also will say that I think it also really showed how well we can band together as staff, as a department, to say, you know, what is our task at hand? And obviously that is to provide services to all of those within our care. And how can we do that in a way that still has a level of grace and dignity and respect amidst our whole world changing upside down? And, and I will say I saw the staff, you know, step up day after day after day after day and do that and really be committed to doing that work, even though they might have had feelings of being scared behind the scenes. Yeah, that was the one unique thing about the COVID-19 emergency is that there really was no reprieve in your day-to-day -day life. It was there when you were at, at work. It was there when you came home. Um, I'm kind of curious, just from my own personal life, I know that I've kind of come to terms with the fact that 
you know, there was a lot of hours I put in where it just seemed like the days would blend together, where there was a lot of uh, work on trying to focus on uh, our response efforts, trying to figure out exactly, you know, what, what, what was going to come next. And I'm curious if either of you had a moment where you kind of felt yourself um, kind of reaching a breaking point or possibly uh, burning out a little bit and how you face that. It's, yeah. a de- it's a deeply personal yeah, one. No, I, it's, a, it's a good question, though, because I think that going back to your question earlier about how do we break the stigma, right? We talk about it, right? We talk about how I'm sure that for everybody to say that, you know, to say that we didn't have a breaking point collectively, right, or or a burnout collectively, you know, I mean, you think about COVID, it's the, the number one act of collective vulnerability, right? Like, um, you know, I think that uh, for me, um, I think that it was how do I support a team doing a really, really important job knowing that we had some constraints, right? Knowing that um, our jobs, like everyone else's, had to shift and, and be done differently really quickly. Um, to your point about kind of the the blurring and the long hours, right? I think um, for people who went into some sort of a hybrid schedule with potentially working at home, although at face value that has some perks, um, you know, pulling the, or excuse me, the establishing the balance between the two um, was definitely difficult. I think though more so than any of that, for me at least, the burnout kind of came from, and, and I'll be the first to say I definitely experienced that, although I do think that was probably the little babies at home that contributed to the burnout for me. Um, but I do think that it was the need to keep going and keep fighting and keep pushing through that, right? And and believing in, in my role and what I do in the department and feeling really lucky and honored to get to do what I do in the department and realizing that a lot of people, um, you know, were, were in the trenches, so to speak, and how do I continue to do my job to support them um, and keep going? And I think that when you just keep going and going and going and not maybe taking care of yourself as, as well as I think we can all kind of agree that all kind of took a little bit of a backseat during COVID, um, you know, it leads to burnout really easily and really quickly and sometimes before you even realize it, right? And so coming back to those things, coming back to those things that, you know, make you feel whole and give you that balance and, um, you know, all of those things that we talk so much about in Office of Employee Wellness, but really putting those things into practice so that I can show up and be the best associate director of my unit so that my staff feel supported so they can do their jobs and then kind of that trickle effect. Yeah, and, and that, that being responsible for a team of others that certainly adds a whole dimension to it. Um, I, I actually started this position during COVID. I've been here for just a little bit under under three years, so uh, sort of a COVID baby, as we refer to sometimes. And uh, I live in San Francisco, and so starting taking over and having most of my people up in Sacramento and Elk Grove, and then some people down in LA, and, and everybody's transitioning to work from home and that sort of thing. Uh, it was really difficult to to kind of form a sense of, of uh, a team working together, being on the same page, when there was so many things changing at the time and so the, the ground shifting beneath our feet, so everything felt less reliable. Uh, and really over the last few years, a, a lot of what we've tried to do is just to add back a layer of stability. Uh, that you know things don't, we aren't trying to pull the rug out from under anybody, we're just trying to help you do what you're already doing in, in a, uh, maybe a more efficient way or, or a way that you're getting some recognition for and appreciation for. Uh, so that was a big challenge, is just making sure people felt that they were heard and understood um, when they didn't know me you know, or, or, or anyone else and I didn't know them. Uh, but it also gave us an opportunity, I think, to, to really build relationships on, on a different um, uh, standard or on a different foundation, which has served us well moving forward. Uh, so just to wrap things up, um, I just, I'm curious, uh, what is your one uh, tip, 
that you would have uh, to help improve uh, one's mental health or their own self-care? You know, I think you brought up the word self-care, and I think the term self-care has become really cliche, right? And, I, and what I mean by that is we all say, you should do your self-care, and, and for some that just feels like another thing on their to-do list. Um, but I think that sometimes we also, as people, and, and I very much do this and need to catch myself, we, we um, make things a little more complicated than they need to be, right? And so kind of coming back to the basics sometimes, right? And so, you know, I know you hear people, you talked about sleep hygiene either earlier, but I know we say, get, you know, sleep, exercise, move your body, eat right, right? And we all go, yeah, 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 I know. But really kind of coming back to those basics, right? What are those things that we can do on a regular basis? Using COVID, for example, right? For people who use exercise as their coping mechanism, that, that changed drastically during COVID. And, and I remember supporting staff saying, well, I used to run, you know, I used to go to the gym and now I can't. And so now I'm just going to sit at home and watch TV. And it was like, well, how do we think outside of the box? And so coming back to those basics, getting outside, getting fresh air, if you have the availability to do that. I realize in a closed setting, like an institution, you don't have the availability to do that. But maybe that means walking from A to B yard, right? When you normally would pick up the phone, right? And being creative with that. And I realize that's seven minutes out of your day that sometimes we don't feel like we have. Um, but making that time, right? Making the effort to get sunlight, to get outside, to de deeply inhale, like really, really primitive basic things that I think we all kind of take for granted and, and, and jump to, well, I need to do this, or I need to exercise five times a week, or I need to eat three well-balanced meals. The, trying to eat three well-balanced meals is very difficult for anybody, no matter where you are, especially if you're inside an institution working. And so not adding the layer of stress to ourselves if I need to be, but just be okay with being and recognize that there's little things that you can do throughout your day that can have a drastic impact. And then I think that that also, um, layers, levels kind of the the burden of feeling like you have to engage in self-care, right? So I know it's not really two tips, but it's more bringing it back to the basics of ways that we can improve our mental health in little tiny ways throughout our day, like getting outside, like getting fresh air, like connecting with people, right? Like, you know, hanging out with somebody that just lifts you up and makes you feel good and your energy shifts when you're with them, laughing, just really basic things. Yeah, that's definitely at the top of my list as well. Um, I, I would add to that that um, to to go easy on yourself sometimes. I, I think a lot of us uh, are are people who hold ourselves to a very high standard and work very hard and do our best to do a good job and and uh, repay the public trust in us and in our civil service positions. And um, I've seen over and over again that uh, when someone gets one project more than they can really manage, they won't say anything. They'll just kind of su suffer silently sort of thing. Uh, when I think that uh, there's there's a broad recognition that people are working really hard and that if you need a break, you should take one and people should kind of go uh, where, where they're most comfortable in that. And so uh, go easy on yourself, give yourself a break once in a while, make sure you speak up when you're feeling like you may be at the beginning of the overwhelmed stage because later on it'll be harder to dig yourself out. Uh, so just Find those, find those times when you can give yourself that, uh, that extra. Yeah, I like that. Give yourself grace, right? Yeah. We're all doing the best we can, so give yourself grace. Right. Well, I just want to thank you both for uh, helping us out today with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of introspection. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Great, Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And once again, that's a thank you to Dr. Mehta and Dr. Rojas for their time today. Uh, that will do it for today's episode of the CDCR Unlocked podcast. You can find more episodes on your favorite podcatcher, and we'd love it if you could uh, leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time. Mm -hmm.